Welcome to the GameDev.TV Community Podcast. I'm your host KB, and I would like to introduce you to industry professionals and people who successfully made their path to the video game industry. I hope that you enjoy the podcast and get useful tips that will bring you closer to achieving your dreams. Now, let's get right into the podcast. All right. Uh, well, thank you for inviting. My name is Rafael Colantonio. Uh, I was founder and creative director of Arkin Studios for many, many years. And uh, I left about three years ago, and now I'm uh, president and uh, a creative director of a company called Wolfi. And uh, I still do the same kind of games, uh, which are, I guess, immersive sims somehow. So, you know, my games I've done are Arx Fatalis, Dishonored, Prey, uh, Dark Messiah, and now Weird West. That's a lot of big portfolio. Gotta did a lot. <laughs> well, it's it's been a long time. Yeah. So how how did you get started with game development? Was this something when you were younger? Yeah. Uh, you know, I see this with my son right now. He's uh he's eighteen and uh, he's is doesn't have much experience, obviously, as anyone who's that age, like I was back then. And uh, you have dreams and uh, whether it is to be in a band or or work for video games or be an actor or whatever it is that sounds like it would be amazing but you have no idea how to do it mm, exactly so it was the same you know had no idea how to get there but uh i got uh lucky and very and then once once i had my door my, my foot uh in the door then i was very persistent um very uh yeah very uh almost uh pathetically insistent <laughs> to, uh, to, to manage it, you know, and yeah. it's really hard because you, you, you only you know how much you want it and how much you think you can add to, um, to, uh, to an industry and how much passion you have to go through all the rejections and all the, um, you know, all the cynicism that people might have about that because, of course, why you more than someone else? Mm-hmm. No, 100%. Because honestly, at the end of the day, nobody really, I mean, I guess they could care, but nobody understands how you feel about what you want to do with your life. So you have to go out there and make it happen. And then people will care about what you care about because you've shown them that you care about. That's right. Yeah. So when did you know you wanted to be like in the game industry? Was this something that just came to you? Was it from playing games? Was it after high school? Yeah, I think, uh, and bear in mind, in, in the 80s, 90s, there was absolutely no or a roadmap for that, mm-hmm. you know, at least nowadays there are, you can do some schools um, and the industry is an industry, whereas mm-hmm. back then it was just a bunch of uh, isolated geeks that were making those games and there was no real clear path to how to do them. So for me, um, I started to play games when I was eight, I believe, which again, uh, I was born in 71. So it means I was playing games in 79, which is, uh, which was rare back then. It made me one of the few uh, nerds out there that uh, young nerds, you know, that was playing games and it was not very well understood by others, but I got hit so much by the profound uh, feeling of immersion in a different world that games would provide to me uh that it stayed with me my entire youth and uh and when you know when kids wonder what they're going to do as they age uh which is always very hard because we only can relate to work we understand that's why most kids they want to do policemen or uh 
uh, or fireman or, or yeah, you doctor, know, collect the trash or something, something. Oh, like yeah. that. <laughs> uh, and, and so to me, I, it was, I wanted to make video games or I wanted to uh, play in a band because th- those were two other things that I knew. And, and anything else was not exciting to me. I was, I was doing school for maths and science and stuff like that, but there was no, nothing sexy to, about this for <laughs> yeah, me, yeah, no. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and even though making games or, or being in a band felt virtually impossible, that's still what I wanted to do. And anything else would make me sad just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I was, that was me. Uh, and, uh, and I got lucky, frankly, I, even though that was, uh, I, I was preparing myself to do something else. Then I, I didn't want to, I didn't really want to work with in a, in a, in a, in an office or, uh, on some abstract work in a, as marketing or, or whatever. I, I, I really wanted to do something that I, I could grasp. And, uh, my other, my third passion, if, if not for video games or music, was uh, was restaurants. So I thought I was really? going to, uh, yeah, I thought I was going to open a pizzeria. Oh my gosh! Wow. Uh, okay. You know, because it felt like okay, we're going to be independent, my friend and I. You know, mm-hmm. we we uh, we don't want to be in the normal world. We are going to make our pizza place, and uh, you know, so uh, that felt interesting. That felt fun enough. And, uh, and as I was uh, doing research in there, I was also doing the military service, which uh, back then was mandatory in my country in France. Um, and uh, I got super lucky. I got, I got just, uh, you know, sometimes sometime you have to embrace luck when it comes to you, at you. And in my case, I filed a competition contest to win a trip to playtest uh the sequel to a game that I was a huge fan of back in the days called Ultima. How'd you get and, that? Well, it was, uh, it was in a magazine. It was in a okay. magazine like the equivalent of PC Gamer. Uh, it was another magazine. This magazine was called Joystick. Uh, and I filed this competition to, to, to win this, this test, to, to go to America, to go to Texas, to play test Ultima 8. And uh, I got contacted by the publisher who organized that test. It was EA. And it was a fake test. It was not, it was not, uh, they were actually not looking for someone to test the game. They were looking for someone to uh, join their French office that they were just opening. Uh, and so they were looking wow. for a gamer, basically. They were looking for someone who knew games and that could talk and be uh, pretty excited and passionate. And they did not want to use a normal an, uh, ad because they, they thought they would be flooded. So instead they did that very smart contest, you know, to, yeah. uh, to be able to pick and choose what they would, they would have. And so they, they called me one evening and, uh, and they told me that they told me, Hey, you know, do you want to do, you, are you interested in interviewing? I was, wow. I have no idea how, how interested I am. So, uh, that, that was the luck, you know, getting inside. But what was not luck was that once I was inside, I created, I shook, uh, earth and, and, and uh, in French we say sky and earth to, to make a uh, career in the, in the development, not in the testing or not in the um, QA, but what I really, really wanted. I, was, I wanted to meet the creator of uh, the Ultima games. I wanted, to, I wanted to be part of that world. And uh, so while I was at EA, which was a 
big organization full of administration and full of uh, you know departments and I was just a little guy in, in the QA department uh, I, I I did all I could to uh, to show how passionate I was about development so I uh, just being embarrassingly and embarrassingly annoying to uh, to everybody, the managers and the the the, the, the producers in England, uh, because I was in France back then. I I asked to be transferred in England so that I could assist someone doing, you know, having a chance to prove myself, like doing some uh, producing stuff or doing uh, anything, voice recording, uh, game design assistant, whatever they would allow me to do, and so they did. You know, that's where EA, um, uh, being part of a big organization like this, if you really uh, constantly lobby and, and, and ask people around you, you know, eventually they will be, okay, well, this guy is such a pain in the ass. Give him a chance, you know. And so they gave me a chance and little by little, that's how it happens until at some point, if you want to grow from there, you don't have many choices. Either you do your own company um, or you wait forever until you have a chance to climb in the ranks and eventually do the game you really wanted in a big company like EA, but that is very, very unlikely because EA knows the games they want. They're not going to ask you to make the game you want. Mm. Uh, that's when that's when four years after, after I joined EA, I realized that... Uh, I realized that my only way forward from there, closer to actually what I truly wanted to do, which was making games like Arcs and Dishonored and all those games, mm-hmm. the only way was to uh, to bite the bullet and make that make that own make that house for myself. There's you know there's a moment you can't count on other teams to give you that chance because who would want to give a young designer a chance to directs a complex game you know why why they would do that they, they they have a huge company that is full of those already and so like they they're going to keep that jobs for the ones who are already in place right mm-hmm. Makes sense. Uh, so that's why the only the only way to get there was to be well, okay i'm gonna i'm gonna create i'm gonna start arcane studios this company that is going to be making the games i want to make and i'm going to find some other crazy people like me who believe in impossible things and and we're just gonna do it, knowing that there's a chance it doesn't work. Obviously, mm-hmm. but now it's our, our own risk. We're not asking anyone to take risk. Mm-hmm. All on you. That's crazy, though. So you had no game design exp- or development experience when you went to EA. Yeah, no. I mean, at EA, I studied as QA and uh, yeah. you know, QA representative. So I had, of course, uh, not game. You know, no no game developer experience at all. So when you say they gave you a chance, was that for like the sound game design or which, which part of them did they give you a chance for? Yeah. So when they moved me to England, uh, it was to be as an assistant producer. So that was very formative because I, I got to touch a little bit of everything. You know, there would be voice recording. I actually even recorded my own vocal, my own voices. Like uh, I, would, I would record the French version of a game, for example, uh, going in the studio, understanding how that works, working with localization, translation. Uh, but also things like uh, motion capture, you know, we just placing those. Back then, we had like those little balls that you place yeah. in very specific places. Now they they have more uh, more elaborate techniques. But uh, back then, it was a little heavy heavy handed. And so, uh, yeah, I would I would be that guy. I'd be that guy that learned how to place those little balls on 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 the bodies and uh, and then record this thing and 
and uh, smoothing the lines because those those motion capture they return to use some sort of a uh, uh, set of uh, curves uh, animated. You know, animate. It's not even animated. It's 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 captured. Uh, um, each ball like, gives uh, you a little curve in space, oh, okay. 3D, right? And all of this combined will create an animation. So they will all like, so there was, uh, so I would smooth those curves. I would clean them. I would process them before the animators actually would, would be able to uh, use the animation. So things like that. And also little by little, they gave me um, uh, game designer roles. Like uh, I, was, uh, I was part of a, a few games. One was called Dark and Light. Another one was called uh, Beast and Bumpkins. None of those were actually big, big hits. But uh, I had a chance to be a mission designers for one of them or, you know, things like that. So little by little, you know, I wouldn't say you know enough because you never know enough about game dev. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very hard process that, that doesn't have a true uh, formula. But you know more and you're more familiar with at least this world and the different type of actors ex that exist in, in how to make a game and what it takes and what is the budget and... You know, it, it, being an assistant producer is a good is a good way to get started. I think in the in the world of, of game dev because you you see a little bit of everything and you hang out with a lot of those people that actually make the games. You think that's easy to get that type of role nowadays, or that was just more like back in the day? Uh no, I think it's still I think it's still possible. I think um, the two, you know, I think QA testing. Those are very easy to get in. Uh, junior designer is actually pretty easy as well. If you have something to show, like say, uh, say you're using Unreal, which is free, everyone can use Unreal, and you can make a mod of a game that you like, or you can make like yourself, like your own little world and using assets that you just buy for a few dollars, you can actually really make it like a, a, a game and that is advanced enough that you can show that, send that to people of the uh, industry. The industry nowadays is so well organized, and I'm talking specifically about those big companies that are looking to hire all the time because it's growing and growing. Mm -hmm. So there are moments like they have, like they have a process to integrate uh, younger talents. So it's actually a little more easy than it was back oh, in the God. days. Uh, and so if you want to be a designer, then I guess, yeah, you show a, an Unreal demo or something. That's probably what I'd do. Uh, if you want to be a programmer, you have schools, you have, you know, so it's, it's as well, you can say, well, I, you know, I've done this school, I've done this, uh, um, I've done this little, all these little examples. What, what's hard, actually being a producer is, 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 uh, is not an easy one because there are a few schools to learn how the, 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 the job of producer specific to games, but even then it's hard for people to evaluate how good of a producer you might be. Yeah, and uh, because producer really is an organizer, problem solver, and there's no way to prove, demonstrate that in an interview. As much as it's possible to demonstrate, like you you, you created that super cool 3D model of a character, uh, or this piece of code or whatever, there's not much to prove how good of a producer you are. Mm -hmm. uh, so usually they are recruited internally because they come from. QA people that have been working in QA for a long time, and they now then they understand games so much from from the the bottom, you know, from the from their worst aspect, which is the, the testing, that they for all the bugs and all the things that they actually uh, have a, uh, a fairly good understanding of of, of the full, 
you know, even if it's on the surface a little bit, but they have a full understanding of the games and, and, and what it takes to, to, uh, to go from a very, very buggy game to a very good game. So, mm. so there's value for that. There's value to that for, uh, for an assistant producer. Okay. And that's pretty good though, because you've given more insight to the ways that you can get into the industry. Because I feel like a lot of people, especially some of the game that TV students feel like it's kind of hard. It's like, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to show people. I don't know what to do, but it's like, like you said, just show some code, show the game that you've made, make something so that they can see, oh, you can do the job and then they'll probably give you a chance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, I would. I would. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of it's well more it's way more organized these days than it ever was. So mm-hmm. I think it's and there's also way more people that want it. Right. So it's it compensates. It's it, it makes it makes it makes it not necessarily very easy, but it's way it's more organized. So it's mm-hmm. it's easier to know who to talk to and, and, and what type of things to focus on in order to get there. Exactly. And while you were at EA, did you like study while not working, like at home? Did you do anything like extra? Um, no, I mean, I was, yeah, I was training myself on, on C, uh, C back then, C++, uh, and I was not good at it. I've, <laughs> I've never been a, a good uh, programmer per se. It, I always thought it was very... Uh, obsessing you know it makes it makes your head in a in a specific mindset which is so uh, uh so obsessive for me I, w- I, w- I would obsess over programming and you know so uh but that's pretty much the only thing i really spent time on from home was to make little personal projects like my, my first pathfinder or whatever to try to even understand how that works you know uh and so then while at EA, you decided that your like main thing was game design or like being a team leader? Yeah, probably. I think um, I always saw myself back then a little bit like a, a jack of all trades. You know, I was, I was, I was a good gamer. I was, a good, uh, I was, uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a very sensitive person. Very, I, I listen to people. So I, I can, I can, um, pretty, pretty good judge of people generally. Um, and I thought, yeah, organizing or or designing was kind of like what I wanted the most. I think at the time, as as I was done with EA, by done I mean like you know when, when I was ready to go to the next step for me, I, I it's not like I liked organization, but I I had it, I had learned enough of it that it was gonna serve me, mm-hmm. for my passion. And my passion was really to create games, like the the the, the vision of it, the the game design side of it. Um, and yeah, and it's scary because it's a game is a, is a big thing. Like there's, there's so many layers to it that compose the experience at the end. Most of all, the kind of games that I like to work on, I don't think in a linear way. I don't think of first there's mission one and you do this and then mission two. And it's all like very prescribed. I think of Mm -hmm. things that are more like, here are all the pieces. And when you throw them together, it's somehow create something <laughs> and uh, that is as very overwhelming of course as a way of thinking um yeah nice okay and then when did you decide you wanted to be leave EA and go do your own thing like arcane studios so it was a little bit out of frustration uh i i think you know the way the mind works is it, it, you 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 make plans for mm-hmm. the next thing etc etc and which is probably the opposite of what the Buddha would tell you if you're like into uh, being a, in a Zen life and uh, mm-hmm. with with happiness, you know. But if you're not, which was my case anyway, uh, you are like always like looking after the next thing and planning ten moves ahead. Oh, yeah, and, I know. Yeah, 
definitely. being all stressed and hanging on to things, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I was like that. And uh, my plan back in the days was uh, to uh, pitch to EA my fantastic game, which was going to be this kind of like underground war game where, you know, you, you have like a sword and all this and it's an RPG and it's a, like a mix of simulation and adventure and all that. And um, again, as I was saying earlier, those big organizations, that will never go through for very, very, now that I'm much older and much more seasoned developer, I understand why, you know, because it, it, there's no there's no avenue for that kind of approach. Like there was no way by going within the, the EA organization uh, as an assistant producer, I was ever going to make my game. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Unless maybe I wait for another 20 years <laughs> and I end up like somehow in a big role of a game and then like I have my chance to make my own game. But that was like a, a plan that I was not ready to, to, to gamble on. Um, so what I did though is that I... I asked for a job at Origin uh, in uh, in Texas, where mm -hmm. I live now, for to the guy who was doing Ultima because uh, I was a huge fan of Ultima. So that guy is called uh, Richard Garriott, and he gave me the job. Like the the I had a contract that was coming in. So for me, it was all right. I'm in. That's it. I'm you know I'm gonna work. If not on my own game, at least I'm gonna work on Ultima, on the next Ultima, which is close enough to my own game in my mind. And most of all, I was 24 or something, mm -hmm. uh, 25 maybe. And um, and then as a, a little before I was supposed to sign the contract, so I received the contract. Even that's how far we went. And I signed it on my end, but before they signed it on their end, EA closed Origin. Wow. Uh, they shut them down, like like they they, they do that a lot apparently. Yeah, they do. <laughs> and uh, and so now to me it's just like a vague memory. But back then I was crushed. Mm. I know. I was yeah. crushed. It was uh, you know you're 24 years old. You have all these dreams and every little step matters and, and it all like you, 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 you know, you hang on to things like, like your life depends on it. At least that's how I was. Maybe that's still I am. And when, when that opportunity closed down, like, oh, I was so crushed. I was so crushed. And so I, uh, because suddenly I, I saw myself, well, I'm, that's it. I'm going to stay in England. I'm not working on the games that I want in, in this rainy country. Uh, so I, um, I, I, I basically left out of frustration at this point because I knew that was not gonna, I did not have the passion for, for uh, you know, keeping going somewhere like that. Most of all, after having been dangled that, that other reality that seemed so appealing of working on the kind of game that I wanted under the sun. Uh, so, I left and I created Arcane shortly after that. How long? Like, was it a couple months? Oh, it took maybe a year. A year. So while that during that year, what were you doing? Other jobs, or you were just like yeah, I was it contracting out? for I was contracting for a company uh, that was working for Infogrames Atari uh, back then in France, and uh, working on a game that was not very meaningful to me at all. But I got a chance to uh, have more experience meet new people, including some of the people that would end up with me at Arcane, uh, creating it, you know. Uh, and I was pushed, I was pushed by my uncle 
who's dead now, but back then he uh, he was a business guy. He didn't know and he didn't understand much about games, but uh, he he saw that I had like some experience and a, a strong passion to make that happen. So even though if he understood how hard it is to make a game, he would probably not have pushed me and or probably not have told me to do it. But uh, uh, we gathered something like $150,000 back, back in the days. Um, some coming from my own money, some coming from uh, my associates' money, and some of it from my family. So, and with that, we uh, we decided to try this crazy adventure of uh, locking ourselves in a room, four of us, for about a year, uh, making a making a demo for a game that I had thought of for years, but I wasn't sure exactly how to make. Mm. What game was that? Ox Fatalis. Oh, okay. And so then after like a year in that room, you released it and it, what was the reception on that? Uh, the reception was not as good as it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, tw- 20 years later, this game is like some sort of a cult that, that people refer to, which is interesting to me. Uh, and again, back in the days, if I had knew that, known that, <laughs> uh, it would, I would have been blown away. Um, back then the game shipped Toe to toe with uh, obli- uh, not oblivion, uh, Morrowind. Oh wow! Yeah, and, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Morrowind was was a was a big heavy hitter, and uh, and so there was a niche. There were there were uh, you know the press liked it. Market didn't really like it because there was no marketing. The, our publisher uh, shut down the month that we shipped actually. So basically, it was the game. The game ended up somewhere in limbo, uh, like in a no man's land where nobody was there to support it. Um, so it was like almost a secret stealth release. That must have been and, hard, though. Yeah, and we did not have any money to to push it, and we didn't even know this world at all, like how to push a game, or you know, there was no internet back then. I mean, there was internet, but it was just more like to have you know very static internet, like more like a page or something. It mm-hmm. was it was nothing to that compares to the nowadays internet. Uh, so yeah, it made its impression. We, we, we got nominated as a studio rookie studio of the year, the GDC that year we got, uh, we got a lot of press. We got a lot of, um, publishers that knew about us. You know, we were known to be those, those little guys that do apparently a good hardcore game that doesn't sell. <laughs> but that's thing. what like yeah but so like was it tough though like because it wasn't as big as you wanted it to be did you feel like oh no we're not going to make it or was it just an obstacle in the way yeah it was tough because i think again the human mind has responded much better to much harder to to bad news than to good news i think right like mm-hmm. we so the, the fact is we had made two step forward and one step backward mm-hmm. But all we could focus on was the step backward. Yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah, <laughs> I right. do have to do that. It sucks. Yeah, it sucks that life is that, but it's it is for a lot of us. Did you like overcome that? Because you know you mentioned like Buddha and stuff like that. Did you use anything to <laughs> get out? <of> there? <laughs> no. You know, maybe uh, I don't know. Maybe some psychotropes uh, can help. <laughs> it's, I don't know. Um, sorry. Sorry, it was such a personal project to you as well that almost makes it sting more than if it was a large game that you'd worked on as part of a larger team. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, it was an extremely personal project with a lot of personal reference in there. And uh, yeah, it felt like my failure before anything, right? And uh, and it's funny because in the grand scope of things, in re- you know, in retrospect, I look at it and, well, no, that was actually a real success, you know? Mm-hmm. It was not a real success. It was, it was a successful step towards success, I would say. But in the moment when all you have is reality and the present moment, it doesn't look like this. It just looks like, well, you know, we just had a car crash. <laughs> we were on our way to the party. Uh, so how do I know at this point that actually this car crash is a good news because then this other person is going to meet me thanks to that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty much the, the reality is that shipping a game like that, even though it was, it did not go to, Oh, there, I got some weird message, the meeting. Oh yeah. Yeah. So usually they have a 40 minute thing, but I guess today they'll say not today. <laughs> All right, perfect. Right. <laughs> so yeah, when, when things like that happen, um, uh, even though it was not like it did not yield all the results that I was hoping for, uh, it was still it was it still took us somewhere you know now we we were known in in the game industry mm-hmm. uh even though we're not known to be like a hit maker we're, we were known for our passion and our very specific type of game and that is what has somehow uh one brick at a time led to uh dishonored because after that publishers would come to us for that specifically uh, for that kind of games that they they, they could mm. recognize, we can do right, and uh, and as we do more of them, then we became better at them, etc. Until Bethesda, who uh, Todd Vaughn, the, the the guy who approached us for the first time, he he was such a fan of all of all of our games before that uh, there was no doubt for him. Once once they were in a position to uh, to look for studios to make that very specific kind of game, Todd thought immediately. Arcane. Mm-hmm. So the idea of Dishonored, was that from you or from Bethesda? So Bethesda approached us wanting a game that would be in the in the style of Thief. Mm, okay. Uh, and they had a name for it. They had a name called Dishonored. And in the mind of the person who approached us, Todd Vaughn, it was an ideal theme would be um, medieval Japan. Oh, wow. With ninjas because of Dishonored. And uh, Harvey and I, we, of course, like when they approached us to ask us to do a, a game like Thief, which made by Looking Glass, we were both Harvey and I are huge fans of Looking Glass. And mm-hmm. they are also the ones who inspired me for, for Arc Fatalis. Uh, we were thrilled. We're thrilled. We're not so thrilled about the ninja part uh, because we did not know much about that world or understand it very well. So we uh, we quickly we took the we took the the deal. We took the opportunity, but quickly we 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 went back to to Todd and said like uh, we we're not sure about the the ninja part. So uh, he was uh, he was cool enough that he just said like. Do what you know? Do whatever you want. Then, as long as you call it dishonored. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Worked out well in the end, though. It did, yeah. Because that was a very trusting company as far as creative. Uh, they 
they approached us and then eventually bought us because they, they trusted us they, uh, to make good games. They were not there to manage us uh, like most big publishers do. Mm-hmm. When you were sitting in the room with Todd, did you feel like you made it? Like Arcane Studios was successful? Yeah, I think there was this, um, you do and you don't at the same time, because I think Arcane was always the underdog. We were always this, uh, this small company that all, almost makes it, but never does. Mm-hmm. And so even after Dishonored, we would still not believe it took, it took, it took things such as going, going to HEB and being recognized by, uh, by a clerk to, or, or people in the street sometime, like a gamer or someone to understand that this time we actually truly had made it. Mm. Uh, and even then, I think our reflexes were, 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 we learned over 10 to 15 years of, of, uh, of struggling made it that we would still be very humble about it. Uh, we never really thought like, oh yeah, we made it. Cause you frankly not never really make it the, 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 and I think it's probably true for a lot of different industries. You're always in balance somehow. You're, you're always trying to juggle different pieces and trying to grow at the same time of staying alive and, and, and making this new thing and making this deal, etc. And you, you know, it's, you're never in a stable position where you just feel, oh, I'm, I can just rest now. Uh, and, but yeah, I do remember that moment with... Uh, that was a beautiful moment, actually, with uh, Todd Howard, in fact, at, uh, at Bethesda. He, so Todd Howard is the guy behind Skyrim and Oblivion, mm-hmm. then you fall out and all that. And uh, back then, I had never met him. I, I actually, no, I, I, I saw him at a, at a conference uh, presenting Oblivion, I think. And I was like, ah, you know, scams to do, ah, whatever. But, uh, <laughs> but I, never, I never talked to him, right? And... Um, so the funny thing is that when, when we met, he said, um, wow, when you guys, you know what happened? He said, he said a few years ago, we were doing Oblivion and uh, Todd Vaughn, the other Todd, had seen Dark Messiah. He had seen a demo at, uh, at the GDC and he came back to, to me and my leads and he said, guys, we are fucked. <laughs> because because they saw the the, the combat system and oh, so yeah. it inspired them to to improve their combat system etc and of course they were far from fucked because the with same way we ended up toe-to-toe uh with morrowind when we shipped arcs fatalis we ended up toe-to-toe with oblivion when we shipped dark messiah <laughs> and they of course crushed us um mm-hmm. but they still like the game and the company. And this is why eventually they came to us and, uh, and went to work with us and buy us. Mm. Which it's just interesting how, again, it goes back to the, the example of the car, car accident where in the moment, all those, uh, all those near successes feel like failures, but eventually they, they pay off. You know? It's mm. just that it's hard to, to appreciate them in the moment. Yeah, it's like the Steve Jobs quote where it's like, if you look at your life, you won't really like see everything. But if you look backwards, you'll see like the dots connect and everything actually was leading to the success you have now. That's right. Yeah. And then I want to hear the whole story about the sound. So like, did you, did you guys come up with the idea of the sound initially and then it became what it is now? Or did like it completely change or how, how did they go with making the sound? 
So we, we knew we, we were going to go for a mission-based game that was going to be sandboxy, mission by mission, and with a lot of variability and in the outcomes based on the choices that you had made. And also we knew that it would be very thief-like uh, in a sense of its stealth plus assassination. Mm -hmm. And so that never changed. The things that have changed that we've added magic, we've changed the the location uh, a few times and the world, uh, you know, the, the world evolved a lot. It started more historical and uh, in, ended up with this thing that people said was steampunk that we didn't even realize was steampunk as we were making it. Uh, but the the vision was pretty clear as far as, far as the moment to moment we wanted. And, and then, you know, once you have more of it, then you can refine it and you can add and deepen some stuff and uh, take opportunities to make great choices as you go, which has always been our approach as opposed to make a plan and then just follow it because that really, it's very hard to plan for something fun. And at the end, it's actually as fun as you thought it would be. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't leave that space for reevaluation, and, and that, too, is a moment where usually people see that as a failure. It's like, wow, you know, we thought it was going to be fun, but it's not fun. You know, where did we, where did we uh, fail, you know? Yeah, and go it, wrong. I think it's part of the process, and it's, it's hard to accept. It's hard to accept that it's, uh, you, you're gonna, your first draft is not going to be fun. It's just going <laughs> to be there to tell you something about your game, and then you're going to have to make decisions. And that's when, actually, the, the value of your developers are, is how well they bounce and respond and and uh make decisions to make changes in the you know in the in the content to to take it to a better place and then where did you get the inspiration for the art and the and the characters in the world sorry what about the art where did you get the inspiration oh uh that was uh i would say that was um a collaboration between Sébastien Miton, who's the French art director, Victor Antonov, who was uh, known for Half-Life 2 at, at Valve, and, uh, and Harvey Smith and myself, mostly, you know, like that, that was this group where, where we, uh, we defined the world, the story, etc. cetera. Uh, and the style itself, I think uh, some of it is very Victor because of the, there's a lot of architecture that are very uh, similar to what he usually likes to do. He's, he's, or he likes big cities with interesting industrial layers to them. Uh, and uh, the type of textures, I think, is very much um, Sebastian. Um, he wanted something uh, a little more, more painterly. And so, yeah, it was a nice. Uh, and then some of the elements of the world, it's somewhere between Harvey and I. Uh, I think he came up with the whales, like the, as as a source of energy. Mm -hmm. uh, I came up with a lot of the powers, uh, and then some of the things. Frankly, if if you ask him or I, we were still not sure who who thought of them because sometimes it's like he will think of something, then I will change it, and then he'll change it back to something else. And mm -hmm. at the end, it's kind of a blur. Of but it's most more or less like the world was defined by this group. And so you said you came up with the powers. How did you do that? Because those powers are unique, and I love them. Yeah, power. So I didn't come with all of them, but I came with a few. Blink, for example. Uh, and uh, I think Harvey and I are both kind of, we were in the same school here. We like things that, we like powers and we like tools in general that, are, that do more than one-dimensional thing. Um, I think, you know, it would, be, it would be easy to think of, well, you know, we could have a fireball and you can the heist ball and the, 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 the electric bolt and, and all these things. And you can do that. Maybe sometimes that's where we start. But 
immediately we thought we think, hold on, if it's a if it's an electric bolt, wouldn't it be cool that at the same time it does other things, you know, like maybe it attracts metal and uh, or maybe it conducts through metal or if it does, or maybe it powers things up. And then and then you let that, you know, you let that live like those all those uh, you, you, you go basically you go beyond its primary function. Mm-hmm. And we also like context changers as opposed to as opposed to just something that is does damage, but more like something that change the weight of things or 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 change the the, the time uh, speed or and that is going to create way more interesting um uh things like, uh, you know yeah. events in your game than something that is very one-dimensional like that spawns damage you know mm-hmm. No, I've seen a lot of cool things on YouTube where like people could, I think this is more dishonored too, but you can like control a rat and then send it into like a room with the other guys and then have it like, have like a tripe or a bomb on it and it'll blow up and you'll be like, I would have never thought of that. It's just so unique, but because you've built these systems, these tools that people can just be creative with it. It's, it's amazing, honestly. Yeah. And, and most of the time, we don't even know that this, these things are going to be possible. It's, uh, and uh, the, the closer we are to releasing the game, the more we, we discover them and the more they are easy to, to plug between each, it together. Because once you've done the, the system that is always consistent where you can actually plug a, a mine onto an object, whether it's a physic or whether it's a, it's a wall or on any surface, as opposed to only where it's planned for, then uh, you try it on a rat and it happens to be working. Yeah, know? right. <laughs> and and uh, and because you can also possess it now, you, you have this other thing. Now you can move the mine wherever you want. I mean, mm-hmm. there's tons of, yeah. It's a weird. Um, it, it's a weird way to work that a lot of producers hate and a lot of programmers hate as well because it creates a lot of bugs and weird situations that were unplanned for. And uh, yeah, it does create a lot of sweating. But from a game designer standpoint, this is amazing. This is this is how your game becomes alive and surprises mm-hmm. uh, even even the designers. Yeah, you're pushing the boundaries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The song "Drunken Whaler." Who whose idea was that? Because that is my I love it so much. Uh, you know, I can't remember either. Uh, we wanted a song for sure. Uh, either it was Harvey that. I know Harvey rewrote the lyrics uh, based on that old uh, Irish song. Mm-hmm. Either it was Harvey who did it, who wanted it, or someone from marketing. I'm not sure. The, the, the lyrics, though, were written by Harvey for sure. And uh, I think people from marketing chose uh, those guys in New York. I can't remember the name. Um, it's it's uh, some sort of a – yeah, they're, they're a group, a band that actually specialized in, in doing uh, covers, uh, you know, actually mm-hmm. – Modern covers of old songs. They're, they're pretty good at that. Um, yeah, but I don't remember the details of yeah. who, who did who. Because whoever decided on the voice was perfect. It, yeah. it sold it. It made it the, what it is today. Yeah, the, it was those guys. It was the band. The, 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 the girl that, that was singing that was not our choice. We, were, we, we basically let them drive this entire effort. Mm-hmm. When you heard it for the first time, what was your reaction? You were like, "This is it. This is perfect." <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, we mm-hmm. we knew it would fit very well. With, uh... Nice. And so, when did you move on to Wolfie Studios? When was that? Uh, so sh- a little bit after I left uh, Arcane, I, I I took a big break because uh, you know I had been on it for eighteen years and I was I was a little burnt. So. Uh, 
I took a break. I frankly wasn't even sure I would, I would still want to work for games back then. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going through uh, one of those moments of doubts. And um, so I focused on other things like my family, uh, music. Uh, you know, I started a band. And, uh, and then eventually I, I started to feel the itch again for it. So uh, a friend of mine, Julien, who was with me at the very, very beginning of Arcane, uh, he wanted to start this company. And so I started to consult with him just on the idea. And eventually I just joined and we just, you know, just did it. Nice. Another band part. How was that? Was, did you guys do any like shows or anything or is it just for fun? Yeah, no, it was great because we uh, we also uh, wrote some of the songs. Uh, there's one song from the extension of Prey that is uh, that is from the band. Um, the, in fact, the, the the credits for for Dishonored Two was mine as well. I mean, back then I was not in a band, but um, uh, it was my song that was uh, produced by a local friend of mine. I was very very good at doing electronic songs. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's still going. It's a very cool adventure. Weird Wolves, it's called, and uh, you know, it's just it's a duo mostly, and we are yeah, we're having a lot of fun. It's a, it's a it's almost starting from scratch in an industry where that I don't know at all, but I but I'm very serious about it, and and I hope we'll get somewhere. Yeah, I hope so too. Thank you. And then uh, for just like the sound and stuff in games, what's what's the process like for doing, let's say, a song or adding. Yeah, like adding a song to the game for people who don't know. Yeah, so, I mean, the best would be Matt Pearsall to talk about that. He was our audio director even back in the days when I was doing Prey at Arcane, and now he's our audio director on Weird West. Um, it always... So I think there there's a set of sounds that are really not fun to do, footsteps, yeah. uh, gunshots, and stuff like that. You know, it's mostly using banks. But then there are, there's an entire creative part, like uh, powers, magical stuff, or UI. Uh, and frankly, he's amazing at that. Uh, he starts with thin air, and he, and he, does, those, yeah, he does those sounds just by mo- stretching them around, modifying them. I've seen his process. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and I have zero skill to do that. <laughs> so, but I'm interested in the music part. So, like, even in this new game, I, I, I'm also part of the, some of the music, at least not all of them, because we have a lot of drones and a lot of ambiental type of music. But for some of the melodies, sometimes when we have one, I, I, like, to, I like to be involved in that and my band as well. Uh, and usually, we, we either... So, for example, I, I, I did one, actually, with, uh, with Eva, my band partner, pretty recently. And it was driven... In this case, it was driven by the mood, uh, we, uh, we have a situation uh, without revealing too much about, we have a situation that is kind of creepy in the game at some point. It's very, very creepy. Uh, and, uh, I need this kind of, in fact, a little bit like the, the drunken whaler, um, because there is, it's kind of like a, 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 a kid, a song for kids almost. And, and so it's got this lullaby aspect to it. So it's super creepy, but it's the Western Wild, Wild West version with, mm-hmm. with those guitars like, <laughs> you know, with the reverb and all that. Mm-hmm. And, and then the voice on top of that is really like, uh, this kind of thing. And uh, I think, uh, so in this case, it was very fun because there was already some sort of, uh, the mood was dictated by what the kind of experience we wanted the player to have when they, when they arrived to that location. Uh, and then in some other cases, frankly, I already have a song and uh, it, 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 it works pretty well for, um, uh, 
um, for for a context, you know. Um, so yeah, and, and again, it's like to me, doing music is still fun. It's not quite a job, so I don't really have a process so much mm-hmm. uh, as much as if you were to ask to uh, uh, some seasoned audio audio guys or audio women that work in in this industry why did you decide to explore the wild west as a location or like to not exactly explore it in a traditional way but to sort of look at it in a different way in a sort of slightly surreal way what was the sort of thinking behind that for weird west um you know, there, maybe there were not too much thinking, frankly. There was, uh, it was a bit of an old passion uh, that I've had for a while, like uh, the West. It's an interesting, it's because it's pretty gritty. It's simple. There's a lot of symbols that go with the West. Uh, it's a little bit like medieval fantasy in a way. It's, uh, uh, you know, people understand knights and, and horses and, and taverns and, and uh, uh, kings, etc. And And I think... It's the same. The, the West, people understand revenge, uh, the land, uh, those very, very grounded themes that speak to people directly as opposed to more complex world like the modern worlds or the science fictions or whatever. And so it sounds, it felt to me, and there was strong imagery as well. So it felt to me like a good, underutilized as well, uh, starting point. But at the same time, uh, we also like... Uh, things that are a little fantasy or different or weird or or maybe a little bit disturbing at, at times. And uh, that's why, you know, we wanted to take this existing setting, but twist it in a way that could be more creative and more fun for us as opposed to being just really like the Wild West as everybody knows it. When you were working on Wild West, was that the first game for Wolf Eye or is that... Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's okay. the first game. And, um... and then how's the process like making that? Did you just kind of the same as the other game you made? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, this one may be a little uh, more chaotic because we started with a very, very procedural approach. We wanted to explore um, procedural content, procedural st- story making, pro- procedural missions, etc. And uh, it's definitely a challenge. It's, it's interesting. It took us somewhere that we did not expect. Um, and, you know, where we are... At some point, we uh, we changed a bit. The the games evolve all the time, so we are now like more into a hybrid model where we do a part part of authoring and part part um, part procedural, which I think uh, is a tendency. I think I think you know the game industry is going to go more and more towards that, trying to master this procedural element, this weird demon that is in a bottle that is hard to really fully understand mm-hmm. um because if you if you go fully procedural you pretty much get a bunch of nonsense if you don't use procedural at all you have something pretty static so i think there's a happy medium there that mm-hmm. uh, we're trying to we're trying to hit so i was just looking on your twitter earlier just finding out a bit more about the game and i noticed you posted a message that you got from somebody who was really well let's oh. put it mildly a little bit frustrated <laughs> yeah um about a glitch that they experienced in the game that's right do you, do you tend to get things like that a lot do people uh, i mean obviously people are passionate about the games they play which is amazing but then it, it can turn to anger <laughs> yeah frankly it's not very common for me anyway i think uh i think there are probably 
much, much bigger, much popular games uh, where they receive death threats all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that was one of... I, I haven't received many in my life, frankly. And But this one was like so... <laughs> aggressive in the writing uh, I, I i you know it's hard to even read without cringe without belie- you know how can someone be so full so full of hatred over something that is um you know it's it at fun? the end of the day it's a product it's a game and even though you know and we made it with a lot of passion so it was like wow that 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 gamer is so out of touch with reality it's kind of scary uh and it did it felt a little scary to be like directly mm-hmm you know name this way and and uh yeah no it was pretty bad but uh it's not very common it's not very common on the flip side of that what do you find that the the um the community tends to like give you feedback and what's the sort of most useful piece of feedback you tend to receive well unfortunately feedback after the game releases doesn't help us much on this game unless we're doing like a, a game as a service model, uh, which we haven't yet. But um, I think it's it's great for the team to read. Uh, most of the time, those are the feedback are always positive. I mean, there's always someone, uh, of course, they, they're going to say, you know, oh, I was disappointed by that part, but they usually say it with a lot of respect. Uh, and And then they will tell you how much they were touched by some aspect of your game. And so that feels good. And I think it's great to send it to the team. You know, that's the, that's the purpose that they serve. I think those, uh, those feedback the most of the time, because they are um, encouraging in a sense like, okay, well, we, you know, pe- some people understand what we're trying to do there. And, and sometimes we have some incredibly meaningful messages. Uh, this, the, the opposite of, of that hateful one, you know, we've, we've had messages where, some people would say you you guys saved my life um and you know i was i was battling a, a complex a uh, uh, complicated disease and i i uh, survived by playing your game i was uh, i i i thought i would hang out hang on, on to life you know you read things like that and you go wow uh that's that's profound you know um, yeah. is that what keeps you going every day those type of comments well not necessarily but they you know, sometimes you wonder, yeah, why are you doing what you're doing? Uh, and we, we're definitely not saving lives, but we are somehow part of the pop culture when we do something, a product that becomes its own thing and people start mm-hmm. to write memes and use your material and develop over it. And, and you know that maybe it's influencing some other younger de- game developer right now. Uh, that is definitely a satisfaction to, to have some sort of an impact, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's the... That's more like a, 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 as an afterthought. I don't think that's why we do it. I think I think we do it just as a uh, as an expression of, of something that is meaningful to us. You know mm-hmm. uh, that we want people to ex- to experiment to experience um, making a game. You you're it's like making music in a sense that you're inviting people to your world into your world. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, yeah. That's beautifully said, yeah. <laughs> and for anybody who wants to start their own studio, what advice would you give for them? I think, depending on when they are in life, uh, making your own anything, not just your own studio, your own company in general, means that it has to be the most important thing at that time for you. 
because it's gonna make it's gonna take a lot of uh, uh, it's gonna take a lot of sacrifice, a lot of a lot of mind cycles, um, a lot of frustration, a lot of strength to go through all the hoops. And uh, if you don't do that as a mission in life, like it's there's nothing more important than that, then chances are. Uh, you might give up on the way because there's, there's going to be it's going to be so so hard that this is really the most important part. Uh, the rest, of course, you need to have a product. You have to you, have to, you need to have an idea that you think the world needs to see because that's going to motivate you for the first thing I was talking about. Uh, and also, why make something that the world doesn't need? Or you you need to believe that the world needs to see that idea, that game that you have in mind. Uh, it's going to also help recruiting people that want to see that same thing happen as opposed to, oh, yeah, we're just going to do some game. You know, at first we're going to start small. We're just going to do a thing that looks like this game. And then little by little, we're going to make cool games. If you start like this, you'll never recruit anyone in that is really good. That's true. Yeah. I didn't think about it like that. And, and uh, that, that was one of the reason Arcane, I think, landed where we did is because we never compromised in our passion and our uh, our ambitions about what we wanted ultimately. You know, uh, otherwise, someone who likes our kind of games, they would work for a company that already does this kind of game. Why would they work for? Why would they work for the the guys that, that do the the not so cool game with the hope that someday they will do a cool game? You know. Um, so yeah, those are those are my my. Um, of course, the hard thing is where do you find the money? I think these days you can make pretty big game for less money than we used to. So the beauty today is that you have free engines, close to free, you know, like Unreal or Unity, where frankly, if you if you are young and you live with your parents, or not with your parents, but you almost have you know, not much needs because you're still at a phase of your life where you, you, you can't afford a lot of, uh, you know, you can afford to live pretty uh, simply. Uh, with all the remote tools that we have, like Zoom and, and uh, as I said, the free engines, the free tools and of, of sort, and you can even buy some, uh, a lot of assets for a few dollars only. I think a team of eight, 10 uh, young developers can really do miracles uh, these days, you know, and and then we are we are lucky enough that now we can distribute things directly ourselves on on some distribution platforms or or directly into the app store, etc. So I, I have hopes. The only problem, of course, nowadays is that there are so many people who wants to make it that there's a lot of noise, and the, the problem becomes how do you cut through the noise? How do you how do you do something where you get noticed? And uh, and that's that's why. Now, more than ever, you can't just get away with doing a Me Too game. You have to do something that is going to be instantly catchy and probably through the visuals at first. Because mm -hmm. that's no, the I only agree. thing people see on a, scre on a screen. You know, they, the, they can't understand gameplay on a screen, but they will, they will see, oh, that this game that looks all weird and, or, or, or beautiful or this. Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, it looks kind of interesting. I kind of want to check it out, something like that. When, when you took the break that you mentioned between you know leaving like this big studio work and then starting starting your own did you find that i don't know how long your the break was but did you find that when you came back things had moved so quickly 
that there was actually quite a lot of things that you needed to learn afresh or was it only a small amount of time and you felt it was sort of a similar landscape to the one you left? Yeah, the landscape was pretty similar. And the only shocking part for me was that I had not done business for about 10 years. So um, because I was part of this organization, Bethesda, that was really taking good care of me. And so my only experience with doing business was horrible because it was pre, pre-acquisition, pre-dishonored. And uh, we were just the underdogs that were constantly beat by all the, all the big guys. And, uh, and publishers would snub us all the time. So then when I came back, I was still with that mentality and uh, I was shocked to see that everybody knew uh, who I was and Arcane and uh, they were all welcoming and they were all, you know, so praising. And so uh, that was an interesting change. Uh, that was, the, that was the, the, you know, the thing maybe that I can remember the best was that different kind of treatment post, uh, post Arcane. Um, but the industry was, uh, you know, even though there's more distribution platforms and more of, more of everything, it's still kind of like set up the same way than it was a few years ago. Right, thank you. So if you can come up with a short challenge for them. A, ch- a challenge? I would say what would be an interesting monster with interesting behaviors? Ooh, Think like of that. the, you know, from the uh, behavior standpoint, the AI standpoint, like the kind of uh, ability or uh, behaviors that they would have. It could be that, one burrows under the under the ground for a while and then you know spawns in your back every five seconds or whatever or something you know something like that but um you know in in prey we had the the poltergeist which would dis- which was becoming visible for a while and throw physics at you physics that were already in the, in the scene um, really based cool, yeah. on where you were so that was an interesting behavior so yeah how about that that's a great one all right. Well, let and me then uh, all definitely, I'll let you know the responses and all that good stuff. Thank you for coming on. This was uh, this was awesome. We learned a lot, and I'm excited about the all the dishonor stuff that I learned. And, Thank you. Uh, want to just end this by handing the mic to you. If you want to do any shout outs, any last inspirational quotes, any anything you want, and uh, thanks for coming on. And the mic's all yours. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, thank you for inviting. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I, I, I got this hour for, for you guys. Uh, it, was, it was lovely talking to you and good luck to all the young developers. I, I, know, how, uh, I know how long that road seemed and uh, I've been there. And uh, it's, you know, if you really, really want it and if you make all the effort for it to happen, it, it can happen. Uh, it, you know, usually it does. It's, it's all a matter of like really, really being persistent. And uh, so good luck with that. And uh, yeah, check out Weird West when it comes out. Check out uh, Weird Wolves whenever you have a minute. It's a, it's a, it's a band and uh, it's my band. And that's it. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. You can find all GameDev.TV courses at courses.gamedev.tv slash courses or in the show notes with a 10% discount. Get started with your game development journey today.